on the Holy Trinity and of the Godhead of the Holy Spirit to Eustathius by Gregory of Nyssa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. To Eustathius, all you who study medicine have, one may say, humanity for your profession, and I think that one who preferred your science to all the serious pursuits of life would form the proper judgment and not miss the right decision, if it be true that life, the most valued of all things, is a thing to be shunned and full of pain, if it may not be had with health, and health your art supplies. But in your own case, the science is in a notable degree of double efficacy. You enlarge for yourself the bounds of its humanity, since you do not limit the benefit of your art to men's bodies, but take thought also for the cure of troubles of the mind. I say this not only following the common reports, but because I have learnt it from experience, as in many other matters, so especially at this time, in this indescribable malice of our enemies, which you skilfully dispersed when it swept like some evil flood over our life, dispelling this violent inflammation of our heart by your fomentation of soothing words. I thought it right indeed, in view of the continuous and varied effort of our enemies against us, to keep silence, and to receive their attack quietly, rather than to speak against men armed with falsehood, that most mischievous weapon, which sometimes drives its point even through truth. But you did well in urging me not to betray the truth, but to refute the slanderers, lest by a success of falsehood against truth many might be injured. I may say that those who conceived this causeless hatred for us seemed to be acting very much on the principle of Aesop's fable. For just as he makes his wolf bring some charges against the lamb, feeling ashamed, I suppose, of seeming to destroy without just pretext one who had done him no hurt, and then, when the lamb easily swept away all the slanderous charges brought against him, makes the wolf by no means slacken his attack, but carry the day with his teeth when he is vanquished by justice, so those who were as keen for hatred against us as if it were something good perhaps feeling some shame of seeming to hate without cause, make up charges and complaints against us, while they do not abide consistently by any of the things they say, but allege now that one thing, after a little while that another, and then again after that something else is the cause of their hostility to us. Their malice does not take a stand on any ground, but when they are dislodged from one charge they cling to another, and from that again they seize upon a third, and if all their charges are refuted, they do not give up their hate. They charge us with preaching three gods, and din into the ears of the multitude this slander, which they never rest from maintaining persuasively. Then truth fights on our side, for we show both publicly to all men, and privately to those who converse with us, that we anathematize any man who says that there are three gods, and hold him to be not even a Christian." Then, as soon as they hear this, they find Sibelius, a handy weapon against us, and the plague that he spread is the subject of continual attacks upon us. Once more, we oppose to this assault our wanted armour of truth, and show that we abhor this form of heresy just as much as Judaism. What then? Are they weary after such efforts and content to rest? Not at all. 
Now they charge us with innovation and frame their complaint against us in this way. They allege that while we confess three persons, we say that there is one goodness and one power and one Godhead. And in this assertion they do not go beyond the truth, for we do say so. But the ground of their complaint is that their custom does not admit this, and Scripture does not support it. What then is our reply? We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and rule of sound doctrine. For if custom is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom, and if they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow theirs. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire, and the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. Well, what is their charge? There are two brought forward together in the accusation against us, one that we divide the persons, the other that we do not employ any of the names which belong to God in the plural number. But, as I said already, speak of the goodness as one, and of the power, and the Godhead, and all such attributes in the singular. With regard to the dividing of the persons, those cannot well object who hold the doctrine of the diversity of substances in the divine nature. For it is not to be supposed that those who say that there are three substances do not also say that there are three persons. So this point only is called in question that those attributes which are ascribed to the divine nature we employ in the singular. But our argument in reply to this is ready and clear. For anyone who condemns those who say that the Godhead is one must necessarily support either those who say that there are more than one, or those who say that there is none. But the inspired teaching does not allow us to say that there are more than one, since whenever it uses the term, it makes mention of the Godhead in the singular, as, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. And elsewhere, the invisible things of him from the foundation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. If then... To extend the number of the Godhead to a multitude belongs to those only who can suffer from the plague of polytheistic error, and on the other hand, utterly to deny the Godhead would be the doctrine of atheists. What doctrine is that which accuses us for saying that the Godhead is one? But they reveal more clearly the aim of their argument. As regards the Father, they admit the fact that He is God and that the Son, likewise, is honoured with the attribute of Godhead, but the Spirit, who is reckoned with the Father and the Son, they cannot include in their conception of Godhead, but hold that the power of the Godhead, issuing from the Father to the Son, and their halting, separates the nature of the Spirit from the divine glory. And so, as far as we may in short space, we have to answer this opinion also. What then is our doctrine? The Lord, in delivering the saving faith to those who become disciples of the Word, joins with the Father and the Son the Holy Spirit also, and we affirm that the union of that which has once been joined is continual, for it is not joined in one thing and separated in others, but the power of the Spirit being included with the Father and the Son in the life-giving power by which our nature is transferred from the corruptible life to immortality, and in many other cases also, as in the conception of good and holy and eternal, wise, righteous, chief, mighty, and in fact everywhere has an inseparable association with them in all the attributes ascribed in a sense of special excellence. And so we consider that it is right to think that that which is joined to the Father and the Son in such sublime and exalted conceptions is not separated from them in any way. 
for we do not know of any differences by way of superiority and inferiority in attributes which express our conceptions of the divine nature, so that we should suppose it an act of piety, while allowing to the spirit community in the inferior attributes, to judge him unworthy of those more exalted. For all the divine attributes, whether named or conceived, are of like rank one with another, in that they are not distinguishable in respect of the signification of their subject. For the appellation of the good does not lead our minds to one subject and that of the wise or the mighty or the righteous to another. But the thing to which all the attributes point is one, and if you speak of God you signify the same whom you understood by the other attributes. If then all the attributes ascribed to the divine nature are of equal force as regards their designation of the subject, leading our minds to the same subject in various aspects, what reason is there that one, while allowing to the spirit community with the Father and the Son in the other attributes, should exclude him from the Godhead alone? It is absolutely necessary either to allow to him community in this also, or not to admit his community in the others. For if he is worthy in the case of those attributes, he is surely not less worthy in this. But if he is less, according to their phrase, so that he is excluded from community with the Father and the Son in the attribute of Godhead, neither is he worthy to share in any other of the attributes which belong to God. For the attributes, when rightly understood and mutually compared by that notion which we contemplate in each case, will be found to imply nothing less than the appellation of God. And a proof of this is that many even of the inferior existences are called by this very name. Further, the divine scripture is not sparing in this use of the name, even in the case of things incongruous, as when it names idols by the appellation of God. For it says, let the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth perish and be cast down beneath the earth, and all the gods of the heathen are devils, and the witch in her incantations when she brings up for Saul the spirits that he sought for, says that she saw gods. And again, Balaam, being an augur and a seer, and engaging in divination and having obtained for himself the instruction of devils and magical augury, is said in Scripture to receive counsel from God. One may show by collecting many instances of the same kind from the divine Scripture that this attribute has no supremacy over the other attributes which are proper to God, seeing that, as has been said, we find it predicated in an equivocal sense even of things incongruous. But we are nowhere taught in Scripture that the names of the holy, the incorruptible, the righteous, the good, are made common to things unworthy. If then they do not deny that the Holy Spirit has community with the Father and the Son in those attributes which in their sense of special excellence are piously predicated only of the divine nature, what reason is there to pretend that he is excluded from community in this only wherein it was shown that by an equivocal use even devils and idols share? But they say that this appellation is indicative of nature, and that, as the nature of the Spirit is not common to the Father and the Son, for this reason neither does he partake in the community of this attribute. Let them show, then, whereby they discern this diversity of nature. For if it were possible that the divine nature should be contemplated in its absolute sense, and that we should find by appearances what is and what is not proper to it, we should surely have no need of other arguments or evidence for the comprehension of the question. 
But since it is exalted above the understanding of the questioners, and we have to argue from some particular evidence about those things which evade our knowledge, it is absolutely necessary for us to be guided to the investigation of the divine nature by its operations. If then we see that the operations which are wrought by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit differ one from the other, we shall conjecture from the different character of the operations that the natures which operate are also different. For it cannot be that things which differ in their very nature should agree in the form of their operation. Fire does not chill nor ice give warmth, but their operations are distinguished together with the difference between their natures. If, on the other hand, we understand that the operation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, differing or varying in nothing, the oneness of their nature must needs be inferred from the identity of their operation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alike give sanctification and life, and light and comfort and all similar graces. And let no one attribute the power of sanctification in an especial sense to the Spirit, when he hears the Saviour in the Gospel saying to the Father concerning his disciples, Father, sanctify them in thy name. So too, all the other gifts are wrought in those who are worthy, alike by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every grace and power, guidance, life, comfort, the change to immortality, the passage to liberty, and every other boon that exists which descends to us. But the order of things which is above us, alike in the region of intelligence and in that of sense, if by what we know we may form conjectures about those things also which are above us, is itself established within the operation and power of the Holy Spirit, every man receiving the benefit according to his own desert and need. For, although the arrangement and ordering of things above our nature is obscure to our sense, yet one may more reasonably infer, by the things which we know, that in them too the power of the Spirit works, than that it is banished from the order existing in the things above us. For he who asserts the latter view advances his blasphemy in a naked and unseemly shape, without being able to support his absurd opinion by any argument." But he who agrees that those things which are above us are also ordered by the power of the Spirit, with the Father and the Son, makes his assertion on this point with the support of clear evidence from his own life. For as the nature of man is compounded of body and soul, and the angelic nature has for its portion life without a body, if the Holy Spirit worked only in the case of bodies, and the soul were not capable of receiving the grace that comes from him, one might perhaps infer from this, if the intellectual and incorporeal nature which is in us were above the power of the Spirit, that the angelic life too was in no need of his grace." But if the gift of the Holy Spirit is principally a grace of the soul, and the constitution of the soul is linked by its intellectuality and invisibility to the angelic life, what person who knows how to see a consequence would not agree that every intellectual nature is governed by the ordering of the Holy Spirit? For since it is said, the angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, and it is not possible to behold the person of the Father otherwise than by fixing the sight upon it through his image, and the image of the person of the Father is the only begotten, and to him again no man can draw near whose mind has not been illumined by the Holy Spirit. What else is shown from this but that the Holy Spirit is not separated from any operation which is wrought by the Father and the Son? Thus, the identity of operation in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shows plainly the undistinguishable character of their substance. 
so that even if the name of Godhead does indicate nature, the community of substance shows that this appellation is properly applied also to the Holy Spirit. But I know not how these makers up of all sorts of arguments bring the appellation of Godhead to be an indication of nature, as though they had not heard from the scripture that it is a matter of appointment in which way nature does not arise. For Moses was appointed as a god of the Egyptians, since he who gave him the oracles, etc., spoke thus to him, I have given thee as a god to Pharaoh. Thus the force of the appellation is the indication of some power, either of oversight or of operation. But the divine nature itself, as it is, remains unexpressed by all the names that are conceived for it, as our doctrine declares. For in learning that he is beneficent and a judge, good and just, and all else of the same kind, we learn diversities of his operations, but we are none the more able to learn by our knowledge of his operations the nature of him who works. For when one gives a definition of any one of these attributes and of the nature to which the names are applied, he will not give the same definition of both, and of things of which the definition is different, the nature is also distinct. Indeed, the substance is one thing which no definition has been found to express, and the significance of the names employed concerning it varies, as the names are given from some operation or accident. Now the fact that there is no distinction in the operations we learn from the community of the attributes, but of the difference in respect of nature we find no clear proof, the identity of operations indicating rather, as we said, community of nature. If then Godhead is a name derived from operation, as we say that the operation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one, so we say that the Godhead is one. Or if, according to the view of the majority, Godhead is indicative of nature, since we cannot find any diversity in their nature, we not unreasonably define the Holy Trinity to be of one Godhead. But if any one were to call this appellation indicative of dignity, I cannot tell by what reasoning he drags the word to this significance. Since, however, one may hear many saying things of this kind, in order that the zeal of its opponents may not find a ground for attacking the truth, we go out of our way with those who take this view to consider such an opinion and say that even if the name does denote dignity, in this case too the appellation will properly befit the Holy Spirit. For the attribute of kingship denotes all dignity, and our God, it says, is king from everlasting. But the Son, having all things which are the Father's, is himself proclaimed a king by Holy Scripture. Now the divine Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is the unction of the only begotten, interpreting the dignity of the Spirit by a transference of the terms commonly used in this world. For, as in ancient days, in those who were advanced to kingship, the token of this dignity was the unction which was applied to them, and when this took place, there was thenceforth a change from private and humble estate to the superiority of rule, and he who was deemed worthy of this grace received after his anointing another name, being called, instead of an ordinary man, the anointed of the Lord. For this reason, that the dignity of the Holy Spirit might be more clearly shown to men, he was called by the Scripture the sign of the kingdom and unction, whereby we are taught that the Holy Spirit shares in the glory and kingdom of the only begotten Son of God. For, as in Israel, it was not permitted to enter upon the kingdom without the unction being previously given, 
So the word, by a transference of the terms in use among ourselves, indicates the equality of power, showing that not even the kingdom of the Son is received without the dignity of the Holy Spirit. And for this reason he is properly called Christ, since this name gives the proof of his inseparable and indivisible conjunction with the Holy Spirit. If then the only begotten God is the anointed, and the Holy Spirit is his unction, and the appellation of the anointed points to the kingly authority, and the anointing is the token of his kingship, then the Holy Spirit shares also in his dignity. If, therefore, they say that the attribute of Godhead is significative of dignity, and the Holy Spirit is shown to share in this last quality, it follows that he who partakes in the dignity will also partake in the name which represents it. End of On the Holy Trinity and of the Godhead of the Holy Spirit by Gregory of Nyssa On Not Three Gods by Gregory of Nyssa This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. To Ablabius Ye that are strong with all might in the inner man ought by rights to carry on the struggle against the enemies of the truth, and not to shrink from the task, that we fathers may be gladdened by the noble toil of our sons. For this is the prompting of the law of nature. But, as you turn your ranks and send against us the assaults of those darts which are hurled by the opponents of the truth, and demand that their hot burning coals and their shafts sharpened by knowledge falsely so called, should be quenched with the shield of faith by us old men. We accept your command, and make ourselves an example of obedience, in order that you may yourself give us the just requital on like commands, Ablabius, noble soldier of Christ, if we should ever summon you to such a contest. In truth, the question you propound to us is no small one, nor such that but small harm will follow if it meets with insufficient treatment. For by the force of the question we are at first sight compelled to accept one or other of two erroneous opinions, and either to say there are three gods which is unlawful, or not to acknowledge the Godhead of the Son and the Holy Spirit which is impious and absurd. The argument which you state is something like this. Peter, James and John, being in one human nature, are called three men. And there is no absurdity in describing those who are united in nature, if they are more than one, by the plural number of the name derived from their nature. If then, in the above case, custom admits this, and no one forbids us to speak of those who are two as two, or those who are more than two as three, how is it that in the case of our statements of the mysteries of the faith, though confessing the three persons and acknowledging no difference of nature between them, we are in some sense at variance with our confession when we say that the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is one, and yet forbid men to say there are three gods? The question is, as I said, very difficult to deal with, yet... If we should be able to find anything that may give support to the uncertainty of our mind, so that it may no longer totter and waver in this monstrous dilemma, it would be well. On the other hand, even if our reasoning be found unequal to the problem, we must keep forever firm and unmoved the tradition which we have received by succession from the fathers, and seek from the Lord the reason which is the advocate of our faith. 
And if this be found by any of those endowed with grace, we must give thanks to him who bestowed the grace. But if not, we shall nonetheless on those points which have been determined hold our faith unchangeably. What then is the reason that when we count one by one those who are exhibited to us in one nature, we ordinarily name them in the plural and speak of so many men, instead of calling them all one, while in the case of the divine nature our doctrinal definition rejects the plurality of gods, at once enumerating the persons and at the same time not admitting the plural signification? Perhaps one might seem to touch the point if he were to say, speaking offhand to straightforward people, that the definition refused to reckon gods in any number to avoid any resemblance to the polytheism of the heathen, lest, if we too were to enumerate the deity not in the singular but in the plural, as they are accustomed to do, there might be supposed to be also some community of doctrine. The answer, I say, if made to people of a more guileless spirit might seem to be of some weight, but in the case of the others who require that one of the alternatives they propose should be established, either that we should not acknowledge the Godhead in three persons, or that if we do we should speak of those who share in the same Godhead as three, this answer is not such as to furnish any solution of the difficulty. And hence we must needs make our reply at greater length, tracing out the truth as best we may, for the question is no ordinary one. We say then, to begin with, that the practice of calling those who are not divided in nature by the very name of their common nature in the plural, and saying they are many men, is a customary abuse of language, and that it would be much the same to say they are many human natures. And the truth of this we may see from the following instance. When we address anyone, we do not call him by the name of his nature, in order that no confusion may result from the community of the name, as would happen if every one of those who hear it were to think that he himself was the person addressed, because the call is made not by the proper appellation, but by the common name of their nature. But we separate him from the multitude by using that name which belongs to him as his own, that I mean which signifies the particular subject. Thus, there are many who have shared in the nature, many disciples, say, or apostles or martyrs, but the man in them all is one, since, as has been said, the term man does not belong to the nature of the individual as such, but to that which is common. For Luke is a man, or Stephen is a man, but it does not follow that if any one is a man, he is therefore Luke or Stephen, but the idea of the persons admits of that separation which is made by the peculiar attributes considered in each severally, and when they are combined is presented to us by means of number, yet their nature is one, at union in itself, and an absolutely indivisible unit, not capable of increase by addition, or of diminution by subtraction, but in its essence being and continually remaining one, inseparable, even though it appear in plurality, continuous, complete, and not divided with the individuals who participate in it. And as we speak of a people, or a mob, or an army, or an assembly, in the singular, in every case, while each of these is conceived as being in plurality, so, according to the more accurate expression, man would be said to be one, even though those who are exhibited to us in the same nature make up a plurality. 
Thus it would be much better to correct our erroneous habit, so as no longer to extend to a plurality the name of the nature, than by our bondage to habit to transfer to our statements concerning God the error which exists in the above case. But since the correction of the habit is impracticable, for how could you persuade anyone not to speak of those who are exhibited in the same nature as many men, indeed in every case habit is a thing hard to change, we are not so far wrong in not going contrary to the prevailing habit in the case of the lower nature, since no harm results from the mistaken use of the name. But in the case of the statement concerning the divine nature, the various use of terms is no longer so free from danger, for that which is of small account is in these subjects no longer a small matter. Therefore, we must confess one God according to the testimony of Scripture. Here, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord even though the name of Godhead extends through the Holy Trinity. This, I say, according to the account we have given in the case of human nature, in which we have learnt that it is improper to extend the name of the nature by the mark of plurality. We must, however, more carefully examine the name of Godhead, in order to obtain, by means of the significance involved in the word, some help towards clearing up the question before us. Most men think that the word Godhead is used in a peculiar degree in respect of nature, just as the heaven or the sun or any other of the constituent parts of the universe are denoted by proper names which are significant of the subjects, so they say in the case of the supreme and divine nature the word Godhead is fitly adapted to that which it represents to us as a kind of special name. We, on the other hand, following the suggestions of Scripture, have learnt that the nature is unnameable and unspeakable, and we say that every term either invented by the custom of men or handed down to us by the Scriptures is indeed explanatory of our conceptions of the divine nature, but does not include the signification of that nature itself. And it may be shown without much difficulty that this is the case. For all other terms which are used of the creation may be found, even without analysis of their origin, to be applied to the subjects accidentally, because we are content to denote the things in any way by the word applied to them, so as to avoid confusion in our knowledge of the things signified. But all the terms that are employed to lead us to the knowledge of God have comprehended in them each its own meaning, and you cannot find any word among the terms especially applied to God, which is without a distinct sense. Hence it is clear that, by any of the terms we use, the divine nature itself is not signified, but some one of its surroundings is made known. For we say, it may be, that the deity is incorruptible or powerful, or whatever else we are accustomed to say of him. But in each of these terms we find a peculiar sense, fit to be understood or asserted of the divine nature, yet not expressing that which the nature is in its essence. For the subject, whatever it may be, is incorruptible, but our conception of incorruptibility is this, that that which is, is not resolved into decay. So, when we say that he is incorruptible, we declare what his nature does not suffer, but we do not express what that is which does not suffer corruption. Thus again, if we say that he is the giver of life, though we show by that appellation what he gives, we do not by that word declare what that is which gives it. And by the same reasoning we find that all else which results from the significance involved in the names expressing the divine attributes either forbids us to conceive what we ought not to conceive of the divine nature, or teaches us that which we ought to conceive of it but does not include an explanation of the nature itself. 
Since then, as we perceive the varied operations of the power above us, we fashion our appellations from the several operations that are known to us, and as we recognize as one of these that operation of surveying and inspection, or as one might call it, beholding, whereby he surveys all things and overlooks them all, discerning our thoughts and even entering by his power of contemplation into those things which are not visible. We suppose that Godhead, or Theotes, is so-called from Thea, or beholding, and that he who is our Theates, or beholder, by customary use and by the instruction of the scriptures, is called Theos, or God. Now, if anyone admits that to behold and to discern are the same thing, and that the God who superintends all things both is and is called the superintender of the universe, let him consider this operation, and judge whether it belongs to one of the persons whom we believe in the Holy Trinity or whether the power extends throughout the three persons. For if our interpretation of the term Godhead, or Theotes, is a true one, and the things which are seen are said to be beheld, or Theata, and that which beholds them is called Theos, or God, no one of the persons in the Trinity could reasonably be excluded from such an appellation on the ground of the sense involved in the word. For Scripture attributes the act of seeing equally to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. David says, See, O God, our Defender, and from this we learn that sight is a proper operation of the idea of God, so far as God is conceived, since he says, See, O God. But Jesus also sees the thoughts of those who condemn him, and questions why by his own power he pardons the sins of men. For it says, Jesus seeing their thoughts. And of the Holy Spirit also, Peter says to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Showing that the Holy Spirit was a true witness, aware of what Ananias had dared to do in secret, and by whom the manifestation of the secret was made to Peter. For Ananias became a thief of his own goods, secretly, as he thought, from all men, and concealing his sin. But the Holy Spirit at the same moment was in Peter, and detected his intent, dragged down as it was to avarice, and gave to Peter from himself the power of seeing the secret, while it is clear that he could not have done this had he not been able to behold hidden things. But someone will say that the proof of our argument does not yet regard the question. For even if it were granted that the name of Godhead is a common name of the nature, it would not be established that we should not speak of gods, but by these arguments, on the contrary, we are compelled to speak of gods. For we find in the custom of mankind that not only those who are partakers in the same nature, but even any who may be of the same business, are not, when they are many, spoken of in the singular, as we speak of many orators, or surveyors, or farmers, or shoemakers, and so in all other cases." If indeed Godhead were an appellation of nature, it would be more proper, according to the argument laid down, to include the three persons in the singular number, and to speak of one God, by reason of the inseparability and indivisibility of the nature. But since it has been established by what has been seen that the term Godhead is significant of operation and not of nature, the argument from what has been advanced seems to turn on the contrary conclusion, that we ought therefore all the more to call those three gods who are contemplated in the same operation, as they say that one would speak of three philosophers or orators or any other name derived from a business when those who take part in the same business are more than one. 
I have taken some pains in setting forth this view to bring forward the reasoning on behalf of the adversaries that our decision may be the more firmly fixed, being strengthened by the more elaborate contradictions. Let us now resume our argument. As we have to a certain extent shown by our statement that the word Godhead is not significant of nature but of operation, perhaps one might reasonably allege as a cause why, in the case of men, those who share in one another in the same pursuits are enumerated and spoken of in the plural, while on the other hand the deity is spoken of in the singular as one God and one Godhead, even though the three persons are not separated from the significance expressed by the term Godhead. One might allege, I say, the fact that men even if several are engaged in the same form of action, work separately each by himself at the task he has undertaken, having no participation in his individual action with others who are engaged in the same occupation. For instance, supposing the case of several rhetoricians, their pursuits, being one, has the same name in the numerous cases, but each of those who follow it works by himself, this one pleading on his own account and that on his own account. Thus, since among men the action of each in the same pursuits is discriminated, they are properly called many, since each of them is separated from the others within his own environment, according to the special character of his operation. But in the case of the divine nature, we do not similarly learn that the Father does anything by himself in which the Son does not work conjointly, or again that the Son has any special operation apart from the Holy Spirit, but every operation which extends from God to the creation is named according to our variable conceptions of it, has its origin from the Father and proceeds through the Son and is perfected in the Holy Spirit. For this reason, the name derived from the operation is not divided with regard to the number of those who fulfill it, because the action of each concerning anything is not separate and peculiar, but whatever comes to pass in reference either to the acts of his providence for us, or to the government and constitution of the universe, comes to pass by the action of the three. Yet what does come to pass is not three things. We may understand the meaning of this from one single instance. From him, I say, who is the chief source of gifts, all things which have shared in this grace have obtained their life. When we inquire, then, whence this good gift came to us, we find by the guidance of the Scriptures that it was from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet although we set forth three persons and three names, we do not consider that we have had bestowed upon us three lives, one from each person separately, but the same life is wrought in us by the Father and prepared by the Son and depends on the will of the Holy Spirit. Since then the Holy Trinity fulfills every operation in a manner similar to that of which I have spoken, not by separate action according to the number of the persons, but so that there is one motion and disposition of the goodwill which is communicated from the Father through the Son to the Spirit. For as we do not call those whose operation gives one life three givers of life, neither do we call those who are contemplated in one goodness three good beings, nor speak of them in the plural by any of their other attributes. So neither can we call those who exercise this divine and superintending power and operation towards ourselves and all creation, conjointly and inseparably, by their mutual action, three gods. For, as when we learn concerning the God of the universe from the words of Scripture that he judges all the earth, we say that he is the judge of all things through the Son. And again, when we hear that the Father judgeth no man, we do not think that the Scripture is at variance with itself, for he who judges all the earth does this by his Son, to whom he has committed all judgment, and everything which is done by the only begotten has its reference to the Father, 
so that he himself is at once the judge of all things and judges no man, by reason of his having, as we said, committed all judgment to the Son, while all the judgment of the Son is conformable to the will of the Father. And one could not properly say that they are two judges, or that one of them is excluded from the authority and power implied in judgment. So also in the case of the word Godhead, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and that very power of superintendence and beholding which we call Godhead, the Father exercises through the only begotten, while the Son perfects every power by the Holy Spirit, judging, as Isaiah says, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, and acting by him also, according to the saying in the gospel which was spoken to the Jews. For he says, If I by the Spirit of God cast out devils where he includes every form of doing good in a partial description by reason of the unity of action, for the name derived from operation cannot be divided among many, where the result of their mutual operation is one. Since then the character of the superintending and beholding power is one in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as has been said in our previous argument, issuing from the Father as from a spring, brought into operation by the Son, and perfecting its grace by the power of the Spirit, and since no operation is separated in respect of the persons, being fulfilled by each individually apart from that which is joined with him in our contemplation, but all providence, care, and superintendence of all, alike of things in the sensible creation and of those of supramundane nature, and that power which preserves the things which are and corrects those which are amiss and instructs those which are ordered aright, is one and not three, being indeed directed by the Holy Trinity, yet not severed by a threefold division according to the number of the persons contemplated in the faith, so that each of the acts contemplated by itself should be the work of the Father alone, or of the Son peculiarly, or of the Holy Spirit separately. But while, as the Apostle says, the one and the selfsame Spirit divides his good gifts to every man severally, the motion of good proceeding from the Spirit is not without beginning. We find that the power which we conceive as preceding this motion, which is the only begotten God, is the maker of all things. Without him no existent thing attains the beginning of its being. And again, this same source of good issues from the will of the Father. If then every good thing and every good name, depending on that power and purpose which is without beginning, is brought to perfection in the power of the Spirit, through the only begotten God, without mark of time or distinction, since there is no delay, existent or conceived, in the motion of the divine will from the Father through the Son to the Spirit, and if Godhead also is one of the good names and concepts, it would not be proper to divide the name into a plurality, since the unity existing in the action prevents plural enumeration." And as the Saviour of all men, specially of them that believe, is spoken of by the Apostle as one, and no one from this phrase argues either that the Son does not save them who believe, or that salvation is given to those who receive it without the intervention of the Spirit, but God who is over all is the Saviour of all, while the Son works salvation by means of the grace of the Spirit, and yet they are not on this account called in Scripture three Saviours, although salvation is confessed to proceed from the Holy Trinity. So neither are they called three gods according to the signification assigned to the term Godhead, even though the aforesaid appellation attaches to the Holy Trinity. It does not seem to me absolutely necessary, with a view to the present proof of our argument, to contend against those who oppose us with the assertion that we are not to conceive Godhead as an operation. 
For we, believing the divine nature to be unlimited and incomprehensible, conceive no comprehension of it, but declare that the nature is to be conceived in all respects as infinite, and that which is absolutely infinite is not limited in one respect, while it is left unlimited in another, but infinity is free from limitation altogether. That, therefore, which is without limit is surely not limited even by name. In order, then, to mark the constancy of our conception of infinity in the case of the divine nature, we say that the deity is above every name, and Godhead is a name. Now, it cannot be that the same thing should at once be a name and be accounted as above every name. But if it pleases our adversaries to say that the significance of the term is not operation but nature, we shall fall back to our original argument that custom applies the name of a nature to denote multitude erroneously, since according to true reasoning, neither diminution nor increase attaches to any nature when it is contemplated in a larger or smaller number. For it is only those things which are contemplated in their individual circumscription, which are enumerated by way of addition. Now this circumscription is noted by bodily appearance and size and place and difference in figure and colour, and that which is contemplated apart from these conditions is free from the circumscription which is formed by such categories. That which is not thus circumscribed is not enumerated, and that which is not enumerated cannot be contemplated in multitude. For we say that gold, even though it be cut into many figures, is one, and is so spoken of. But we speak of many coins or many staters, without finding any multiplication of the nature of gold by the number of staters. And for this reason we speak of gold when it is contemplated in great bulk, either in plate or in coin, as much, but we do not speak of it as many golds, on account of the multitude of the material. Except when one says there are many gold pieces, darics, for instance, or staters, in which case it is not the material, but the pieces of money to which the significance of number applies. Indeed, properly, we should not call them gold, but golden. As then, the golden staters are many, but the gold is one, so too those who are exhibited to us severally in the nature of man, as Peter, James, and John are many, yet the man in them is one. And although scripture extends the word according to the plural significance, where it says, men swear by the greater, and sons of men, and in the other phrases of the like sort, we must recognize that in using the custom of the prevailing form of speech, it does not lay down a law as to the propriety of using the words in one way or another. Nor does it say these things by way of giving us instruction about phrases, but uses the word according to the prevailing custom, with a view only to this, that the word may be profitable to those who receive it, taking no minute care in its manner of speech about points where no harm can result from the phrases in respect of the way they are understood. Indeed, it would be a lengthy task to set out in detail from the scriptures those constructions which are inexactly expressed, in order to prove the statement I have made. Where, however, there is a risk of injury to any part of the truth, we no longer find in scriptural phrases any indiscriminate or indifferent use of words. For this reason, scripture admits the naming of men in the plural, because no one is, by such a figure of speech, led astray in his conceptions to imagine a multitude of humanities, or supposes that many human natures are indicated by the fact that the name expressive of that nature is used in the plural. But the word God, it employs studiously in the singular form only, guarding against introducing the idea of different natures in the divine essence by the plural signification of gods. This is the cause why it says, The Lord our God is one Lord, 
and also proclaims the only begotten God by the name of Godhead, without dividing the unity into a dual signification, so as to call the Father and the Son two gods, although each is proclaimed by the holy writers as God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and yet by the same proclamation God is one, because no difference either of nature or of operation is contemplated in the Godhead. For if, according to the idea of those who have been led astray, the nature of the Holy Trinity were diverse, the number would by consequence be extended to a plurality of gods, being divided according to the diversity of essence in the subjects. But since the divine, single and unchanging nature, that it may be one, rejects all diversity in essence, it does not admit in its own case the signification of multitude. But, as it is called one nature, so it is called in the singular by all its other names, God, Good, Holy, Saviour, Just, Judge, and every other divine name conceivable. Whether one says that the names refer to nature or to operation, we shall not dispute the point. If, however, anyone cavils at our argument on the ground that, by not admitting the difference of nature, it leads to a mixture and confusion of the persons, we shall make to such a charge this answer, that while we confess the invariable character of the nature, we do not deny the difference in respect of cause, and that which is caused, by which alone we apprehend that one person is distinguished from another, by our belief, that is, that one is the cause, and another is of the cause, and again, in that which is of the cause, we recognize another distinction. For one is directly from the first cause, and another by that which is directly from the first cause, so that the attribute of being only begotten abides without doubt in the Son, and the interposition of the Son, while it guards his attribute of being only begotten, does not shut out the Spirit from his relation by way of nature to the Father. But in speaking of cause and of the cause, we do not by these words denote nature, for no one would give the same definition of cause and of nature, but we indicate the difference in manner of existence. For when we say that one is caused, and that the other is without cause, we do not divide the nature by the word cause, but only indicate the fact that the Son does not exist without generation, nor the Father by generation, but we must needs in the first place believe that something exists, and then scrutinize the manner of existence of the object of our belief. Thus the question of existence is one, and that of the mode of existence is another. To say that anything exists without generation sets forth the mode of its existence, but what exists is not indicated by this phrase. If one were to ask a husbandman about a tree, whether it were planted or had grown of itself, and he were to answer either that the tree had not been planted or that it was the result of planting, would he by that answer declare the nature of the tree? Surely not. But while saying how it existed, he would leave the question of its nature obscure and unexplained. So, in the other case, when we learn that he is unbegotten, we are taught in what mode he exists, and how it is fit that we should conceive him as existing, but what he is we do not hear in that phrase. When, therefore, we acknowledge such a distinction in the case of the Holy Trinity, as to believe that one person is the cause, and another is of the cause, we can no longer be accused of confounding the definition of the persons by the community of nature. Thus, since, on the one hand, the idea of cause differentiates the persons of the Holy Trinity, declaring that one exists without a cause, another is of the cause, and since, on the one hand, the divine nature is apprehended by every conception as unchangeable and undivided, for these reasons we properly declare the Godhead to be one, and God to be one, and employ in the singular all other names which express divine attributes.
End of On Not Three Gods by Gregory of Nyssa. On the Faith by Gregory of Nyssa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. To Simplicius. God commands us by his prophet not to esteem any new God to be God and not to worship any strange God. Now it is clear that that is called new which is not from everlasting, and on the contrary that is called everlasting which is not new. He then, who does not believe that the only begotten God is from everlasting of the Father, does not deny that he is new, for that which is not everlasting is confessedly new, and that which is new is not God, according to the saying of Scripture, There shall not be in thee any new God. Therefore, he who says that the Son once was not, denies his Godhead. Again, he who says, Thou shalt never worship a strange God, forbids us to worship another God. And the strange God is so called in contradistinction to our own God. Who then is our own God? Clearly the true God. And who is the strange God? Surely he who is alien from the nature of the true God. If therefore our own God is the true God, and if, as the heretics say, the only begotten God is not of the nature of the true God, he is a strange God and not our God. But the gospel says the sheep will not follow a stranger. He that says he is created will make him alien from the nature of the true God. What then will they do who say that he is created? Do they worship that same created being as God, or do they not? For, if they do not worship him, they follow the Jews in denying the worship of Christ. And if they do worship him, they are idolaters, for they worship one alien from the true God. But surely it is equally impious not to worship the Son and to worship the strange God. We must then say that the Son is the true Son of the true Father, that we may both worship him and avoid condemnation as worshipping a strange God. But to those who quote from the Proverbs the passage, The Lord created me, and think that they hereby produce a strong argument that the Creator and Maker of all things was created, we must answer that the only begotten God was made for us many things. For he was the Word, and was made flesh, and he was God, and was made man, and he was without body, and he was made a body. And besides, he was made sin, and a curse, and a stone, and an axe, and bread, and a lamb, and a way, and a door, and a rock, and many such things, not being by nature any of these, but being made these things for our sakes by way of dispensation. As therefore being the word, he was for our sakes made flesh, and as being God, he was made man, so also being the creator, he was made for our sakes a creature, for the flesh is created. As then he said by the prophet, Thus saith the Lord, He that formed me from the womb to be his servant. So he said also by Solomon, The Lord created me as the beginning of his ways for his works. For all creation, as the apostle says, is in servitude. Therefore both he who was formed in the virgin's womb, according to the word of the prophet, is the servant and not the Lord, that is to say, the man according to the flesh in whom God was manifested. And also in the other passage, he who was created as the beginning of his ways is not God, but the man in whom God was manifested to us for the renewing again of the ruined way of man's salvation. 
so that since we recognize two things in Christ, one divine, the other human, the divine by nature, but the human in the incarnation, we accordingly claim for the Godhead that which is eternal, and that which is created we ascribe to his human nature. For as, according to the prophet, he was formed in the womb as a servant, so also, according to Solomon, he was manifested in the flesh by means of this servile creation. But when they say, if he was, he was not begotten, and if he was begotten, he was not, let them learn that it is not fitting to ascribe to his divine nature the attributes which belong to his fleshly origin. For bodies which do not exist are generated, and God makes those things to be which are not but does not himself come into being from that which is not. And for this reason also Paul calls him the brightness of glory, that we may learn that as the light from the lamp is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness, and is united with it. For as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines out simultaneously. So in this place the apostle would have us consider both that the Son is of the Father, and that the Father is never without a Son, for it is impossible that glory should be without radiance, as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness. But it is clear that as his being brightness is a testimony to his being in relation with the glory, for if the glory did not exist, the brightness shed from it would not exist, so to say that the brightness shed from it would not exist, so, to say that the brightness once was not, is a declaration that the glory also was not, when the brightness was not, for it is impossible that the glory should be without the brightness, as therefore it is not possible to say in the case of the brightness, if it was, it did not come into being, and if it came into being, it was not. So, it is in vain to say this of the sun, seeing that the sun is the brightness." Let those also who speak of less and greater in the case of the Father and the Son learn from Paul not to measure things immeasurable. For the Apostle says that the Son is the express image of the person of the Father. It is clear then that however great the person of the Father is, so great also is the express image of that person. For it is not less possible that the express image should be less than the person contemplated in it. And this the great John also teaches when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. For in saying that he was in the beginning, and not after the beginning, he showed that the beginning was never without the Word. And in declaring that the Word was with God, he signified the absence of defect in the Son in relation to the Father. For the Word is contemplated as a whole together with the whole being of God. For if the word were deficient in his own greatness, so as not to be capable of relation with the whole being of God, we are compelled to suppose that that part of God which extends beyond the word is without the word. But in fact the whole magnitude of the word is contemplated together with the whole magnitude of God, and consequently in statements concerning the divine nature it is not admissible to speak of greater and less. As for those who say that the begotten is in its nature unlike the unbegotten, let them learn from the example of Adam and Abel not to talk nonsense. For Adam himself was not begotten according to the natural generation of men, but Abel was begotten of Adam. Now surely he who is never begotten is called unbegotten, and he who came into being by generation is called begotten. Yet the fact that he was not begotten did not hinder Adam from being a man, nor did the generation of Abel make him at all different from man's nature, but both the one and the other were men, although the one existed by being begotten, and the other without generation. 
So in the case of our statements as to the divine nature, the fact of not being begotten and that of being begotten produce no diversity of nature, but just as in the case of Adam and Abel the manhood is one, so is the Godhead one in the case of the Father and the Son. Now touching the Holy Spirit also the blasphemers make the same statement as they do concerning the Lord, saying that he too is created. But the church believes as concerning the Son, so equally concerning the Holy Spirit, that he is uncreated, and that the whole creation becomes good by participation in the good which is above it, while the Holy Spirit needs not any to make him good, seeing that he is good by virtue of his nature, as the scripture testifies. That the creation is guided by the Spirit, while the Spirit gives guidance. That the creation is governed, while the Spirit governs. That the creation is comforted, while the Spirit comforts. That the creation is in bondage, while the Spirit gives freedom. That the creation is made wise, while the Spirit gives the grace of wisdom. That the creation partakes of the gifts, while the Spirit bestows them at his pleasure. For all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. And one may find multitudes of other proofs from the Scriptures that all the supreme and divine attributes which are applied by the Scriptures to the Father and the Son are also to be contemplated in the Holy Spirit. Immortality, blessedness, goodness, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, every excellent attribute is predicated of the Holy Spirit just as it is predicated of the Father and of the Son, with the exception of those by which the persons are clearly and distinctly divided from each other. I mean that the Holy Spirit is not called the Father or the Son, but all other names by which the Father and the Son are named are applied by Scripture to the Holy Spirit also. By this, then, we apprehend that the Holy Spirit is above creation. Thus, where the Father and the Son are understood to be, there the Holy Spirit also is understood to be. For the Father and the Son are above creation, and this attribute, the drift of our argument, claims for the Holy Spirit. So it follows that one who places the Holy Spirit above the creation has received the right and sound doctrine, for he will confess that uncreated nature which we behold in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to be one. But since they bring forward as a proof according to their ideas of the created nature of the Holy Spirit, that utterance of the prophet which says, He that establisheth the thunder and createth the Spirit and declareth unto man his Christ, we must consider this, that the prophet speaks of the creation of another spirit in the establishing of the thunder, and not of the Holy Spirit. For the name of thunder is given in mystical language to the gospel. Those then, in whom arises firm and unshaken faith in the gospel, pass from being flesh to become spirit. As the Lord says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is God, then, who, by establishing the voice of the gospel, makes the believer spirit, and he who is born of the spirit and made spirit by such thunder declares Christ. As the apostle says, no man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. End of On the Faith by Gregory of Nyssa